fantastic day it's what it's a wednesday wednesday february 8th it's just a fantastic day to be alive it's a nice like 60 degrees right now in north carolina you know that's this is my favorite part i used to i i grew up in maryland then i was in florida in, in maryland it was too cold florida was too hot but north carolina it's it's just right i mean you rarely get uh, a day that's super freezing. So what am I? Oh yeah. It's uh, <laughs> there you go. I forgot. It's Wagner Wednesday. So true. But today I just wanted to weigh in a bit. Uh, Gavin had a video. Where is it? Where is Gavin's video? But, uh, oh, the best and worst responses to my icons video and to prove that I actually listened to the part that I did, I will be Sharing no called the Calder's gonna be on tomorrow, not today for anybody asking. Calder and I are gonna be talking about his new project that he's working on, which is gonna be a divine office locator. But yeah, this is the video that I'm gonna be responding to. I probably won't play it, maybe I will play it. I don't know. I find playing other people's videos to be pretty boring. No, I'm just responding to every single word they say. I like a more meta approach. It's going to be, I think that's going to be my word. Rather than nuance, it's going to be meta. It's a new meta approach. So I wanted to just discuss in general, just kind of in the broadest possible terms about doctrinal development, liturgical law, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think Jimmy, uh, as if, if you're watching Jimmy, sorry, throwing you under the bus here. But... I think Jimmy, uh, his explanation did not help at all. Um, I think Swan did a lot better than Jimmy, uh, as long as one remembers that the Polaroid Swan's talking about is in your brain. It's in the uh, mind of the church. It's not in the revealed data itself or anything exterior to it. It's not objective. It's completely subjective. So I, I but overall, I just thought that generally speaking, these responses have been lackluster. So I just wanted to kind of lay things out there and show, yeah, this is what a doctrinal development is, but also, yeah, veneration of icons really isn't uh, at all a doctrinal development. And uh, it it's a so-called cultic development, as others have been calling it. I'm fine with that. Uh, I prefer 
a uh, a liturgical a liturgical development would that be the right word I guess I guess it would be it'd be a liturgical development uh, that's that's how how I like to put it and I'm going to be proving this uh, by just looking through a bit on St Thomas's tract de legibus where he talks about the nature of law and such like that to show yes yeah, ceremonial laws uh, they it this this would be as as weird uh, to kind of put it into uh, other terms for you guys. This would be as weird as somebody flipping out that the early Christians uh, in their liturgical practices, um, I don't know, uh, didn't have big church buildings or they had certain canonical laws when it can, comes to the age of ordination that's different from us. It, it's it's really actually uh, that low key, uh, really, really that unimportant. Us of a of a development. I don't, I don't even think there's any underlying principles uh, that are developed here. In, in, and I'm going to be showing all this throughout this video, uh, drawing on some some good principles of the nature of liturgical law and so forth. And yeah, it should be fun. But before we begin, uh, remember, as always, if you appreciate me doing videos like this or any other videos, become a patron at patreon.com slash militantomist allows me to uh, bring scholasticism to to all of you young folk out there that are that have been fed a very meager diet of of theology thus far so why at first i because i, I figure with videos like these uh, you know you, you get you get new people so those of you out there who have never heard of me never heard about what i do i just wanted to tell you why you should trust me because I'm coming out here telling you this and that about doctrinal development, because there really isn't a definitive text on doctrinal development in English, uh, which I'm going to be in a moment getting into uh, why Newman's isn't really a definitive uh, work in English. So there really isn't a definitive uh, doctrinal development work in English that I could just snap before you and then uh, explain to you all of all of what's going on uh, with doctrinal development just from this one work or a small section of work or or whatever it may be <clears throat> and a lot of people they're just generally confused on doctrinal development they're like okay uh is this a conclusion is it a clarification is it a change uh what's this object thing what's this concept thing what's this subject thing uh they're, they're not really they don't really have clear notions of what doctrinal development is and it kind of just shifts uh as as gavin said and i think this is appropriate for most people, it's just a magic wand. Um, it, it's uh, fr from the other Paul's meme, the uh, slap some Newman on it from, from the Flex Seal guy. Really, uh, doctrinal development is abused. Uh, and it, it's, it really makes me mad because it, it is something which is truly profound uh, when it comes to the, the reflection on the, the church's vocation of, of dogmatic teacher uh, to the world of the revealed deposit of Christ. It's, it's a really fantastic a reflection on, on the gifts of God in the church. And people just use it as the little flex seal tape to, to patch a bunch of holes in their arguments. Or as Gavin said, the little magic wand that just makes all of the historical problems go away. So yeah, you know, we actually don't need to care about the fathers. We actually don't need to care about ecclesiastical history. You know, we just kind of care about the president of the magisterium. And if it's uh, different than earlier, who cares? Because, you know, I'm just going to grab my doctrinal development magic wand and I'm just going to make all of the mess go away right before your very eyes. So 
that's that's kind of that's kind of just how everybody uses it, and it's really sad. Uh, but the reason you should trust me because that's what I that's why I started out uh, this this conversation um, discussing is that I have actually uh, put in a great deal of work into uh, a little known, uh, at least little known outside of uh, my own circles, but a little known debate in the early 20th century between Father Schultz, Father Marine Sola, and Father Gary Goulagrange, three Dominicans. So there was a debate within a few theologians in the Dominican order. Uh, Father Marine Sola in the early 20th century wrote a series of article on, uh, what, articles on what he called the homogeneous evolution of Catholic dogma, which was meant to be a bit of a uh, response uh, to what is called transformistic evolutionism. Uh, which has to do with uh, the modernist thesis and tracing the history of and uh, what what Marine Solo was doing was trying to trace the history of thought on the development of doctrine uh, throughout, especially the Dominican order. But uh, it also went into a few of the Jesuits and also a few Franciscans and secular clergy to see how the theologians have historically thought about the development of doctrine. Uh, and it specifically was on the question of the definability of theological conclusions. And uh, give me a second. So when it comes to the definability of theological conclusions, it's the question of whether we can conclude from uh, a dogma directly, formal, uh, not directly, but formally revealed by God in Scripture, whether we can conclude from that a certain uh doctrine, and then take that doctrine and define it to be a faith. So if we looked at, let's let's say we considered Christ, we say, okay, Christ is a man. Uh, we look at men, okay, men, they're uh, risible, that is, they have the ability to laugh. Could we define the proposition Christ is risible? On the one hand, Schultz and Gary Lagrange said, no, we can only define a certain clarification of the revealed deposit. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, Father Marine Sola, and I would argue uh, the, the vast majority of theologians before the early 17th century, would say, yes, actually, we can define a theological conclusion. They can be a faith uh, because of uh, something to do with uh, the, the church's uh, ability to draw out that which is virtually contained uh, in the revealed data. And the revealed data has to do with those specific terms coming out of the mouth of the apostles or uh, off of the pen of the apostles. So I have uh, been researching that in, in a great amount of detail. Uh, it, it has taken up a lot of time. I'm currently doing a series on this on my channel. So if you would like to get all of the specifics, all of the, the scholastic details that you guys care about, I'll go over there. So Really, uh, this kind of puts me in a bit of a unique situation uh, because we're having a debate where a lot of people are using a word and nobody understands what that word means. So what I'm going to say here is going to be a lot of things people aren't talking about. Uh, and, and when we're able to shed uh, light uh, from a period of, uh, of theological history on a contemporary debate, oftentimes, we're allowed to, we're able to have a, a sort of fruitful interaction uh, that brings forth a lot of things that were previously uh, not being talked about. And uh, I, I think uh, really, uh, and this is directly to Gavin, um, I, I will offer, Gavin, if you want to talk about this, 
if you want to talk about what doctrinal development is, uh, and you also want to talk about uh, how doctrinal development interacts with the debate over iconography, I am more than happy uh, go on your channel, you come on my channel, what, whatever you want. I am more than happy to, to talk about, uh, talk to you about that. So if anybody uh, wants to, to go crazy out there and, and tag Gavin a million times and tell him to, to get me on or, or to get him on here, then sure, uh, go for it. I, I'm happy to do it. But this is really uh, supposed to be uh, something which is self-inclusive, self-inclusive, uh, self-sufficient, I guess, for the, for the task at hand. Um, this isn't going to be something that needs a, a further discussion. This is going to be definitive uh, unless people have, unless Gavin has 100 questions to, to ask me when it comes to this. So uh, when it comes to the, uh, the sort of outline of what I'm going to do here, first, I'm going to talk about exactly what doctrinal development is. Uh, and, and get into a bit of the different schools of thought when it comes to doctrinal development, where we even place Newman there. Uh, and, and I think some of the points, uh, some important points on why Newman isn't really the best guide uh, when it comes to doctrinal development. And those who have only studied Newman aren't really uh, at all qualified to, to speak definitively uh, when it comes to doctrinal development. I hate to be a sound like a snob there. Uh, to, oh, you have to read your Sola, and you have to read your Schultz, and you have to read uh, Dera Valacione, where Gary Gu discusses it, and you have to read all of these things. But, you know, it, it actually kind of is necessary, uh, because scholasticism does have that clarifying effect uh, when it comes to our notions. And then, uh, second, I'm going to be discussing uh, specifically the nature of liturgical law from St. Thomas's uh, Tract de Legibus in, in Prima Secundae. And then uh, finally, I'm going to be discussing a little bit on his argument uh, from Nicaea too. <clears throat> Although, uh, to be perfectly uh, out there with you guys, uh, the the specific workings of the Acts of Nicaea too, not uh, my forte. So this is just going to kind of just be um, in order in order for completeness uh, to, to to see how this would at least uh, interact. Uh, with Nicaea too, and the specific scope of um, certain authorities within the church. Uh, so uh, that that's going to be that's going to be how this goes. So first, uh, what is doctrinal development? So first, we have to look at the revelation of the apostles. So if Christ became incarnate, come down to earth started his public ministry, uh, appointed his apostles, and his apostles were to uh, teach the entire world the revealed deposit. Uh, they were given uh, that same voc. They, there is an analogous relationship between the sending of Christ to earth in order to, uh, in order to be a divine legate and bring the message of God, and then Christ's sending of the apostles. And there was a certain uh, what's called a prophetic light, uh, which was given to the apostles in order to preach the gospel of Christ infallibly. So without error uh, throughout the primitive church. So the terminus or the starting point of doctrinal development, or uh, I frequently move between that and the evolution of dogma. I prefer evolution of dogma, but doctrinal development is, is fine. Uh, the, the terminus or the starting point of doctrinal development is going to be the revealed data. So those specific sentences, or said to be judgments, which were preached by the apostles, are the starting points of doctrinal development. Are we good there? 
anything uh, that is going to develop is going to be from those points. That's the starting point. Now, what is the measure of doctrinal development? How can we say, okay, that uh, we have a more developed uh, system of dogma, more developed doctrine, singular doctrine right here, than, uh, uh, than previously? What is the ultimate measure? So on the one hand, the ultimate measure cannot be God. Because in God's understanding of the revealed data, that is, those sentences preached or written by the apostles, there is a complete understanding of the meaning of the notions and also of all of the implications of the judgment. So all of the conclusions that could ever be drawn or all of the clarification that could ever be done is going to be able to be done by, by God, obviously. So we're not developing from God's understanding. Actually, we're really receding from God's understanding. And because of the exaltedness of the divine mysteries on the one hand, and because of the, the pure lack of human language on the other hand, there needs to be this clarification of notions and these drawings of conclusions. But we're going to be getting into that later. Now, the second point, is it from the apostles themselves? Also, no. The apostles, from the revealed light that was given to them in order to preach the doctrine of Christ infallibly, had a complete understanding, uh, at least in accordance with the, the, the exigencies and possibilities of uh, a human intellect. They had a complete understanding of the doctrine of Christ. Of all of the of all of the of all of the revealed data that that went out of their mouths. Now, on the third hand, we have the infant church. The infant church are the people of God who received the word of God. And I guess if you want to speak more specifically, we, we cannot only uh, speak of the the people of God. We can also speak of the ecclesiastical magisterium. So the successors of the apostles, which were the bishops and the uh, presbyters. So is it compared to them? Yes. It's not compared to God, not compared to the apostles, but compared to the infant church. So when we say that there is a doctrinal development we're taking its terminus from the revealed data, that is the words coming out of the mouth of the apostles or from the pen of the apostles. And it is first the understanding of the notions and second, the possible conclusions or said to be uh, in the technical literature, the virtualities of the judgments. So if we are able to understand more or able to draw more conclusions, then the primitive church could, then it is said to either be the evolution of dogma, which is going to be in reference to those things binding of faith, or it can be said to be the uh, development of doctrine, which doctrine generally is just the teaching, which could be binding of faith or it could be theological conclusions. So if we're said to have more than the primitive church who first received the apostolic message, then we can uh, we can say that there has been doctrinal development. So this is very important. 
because a lot of people misunderstand this and think that it that we are having some sort of greater understanding than the apostles themselves. No, it is uh, from the the primitive church. So now getting more specifically into the ways in which the revealed data could be taken. Uh, it can be taken in two different ways. So the first, uh, which I've mentioned before, is the clarification of the notions. And I'm going to be checking the live chat, guys, by the way. I forgot to do that. I'm looking at my notes right now. Ah, salve. Uh, does evolution of dogma allow punctuated evolution? What is punctuated evolution? Um, tell me what punctuated evolution is and I will tell you. But back to it. So there are two different ways that this evolution or development can happen. So the first way, which I've mentioned before, there can be the clarification of notions. So what is a notion? So traditionally in logic, we have what are called the three acts of the intellect. First is apprehension, second is judgment, third is uh, discourse. So when it comes to apprehension, let's say I have the idea of a cup in my head. That idea of cup and the enunciation right now of cup, that is, uh, that is a certain uh, first act of the intellect. And cup is a notion. Now with the second act of the intellect, I look at my cup and I see cup and I also see white and I make the judgment. The cup is white. The cup is white. The joining together of two notions by the copula that is, is. So the joining of cup and white by is, that is the second act of the intellect or judgment. Now let's say on the third part, I, uh, I engage in what's called discourse. And I create a syllogism. So I say the cup is white. Um, white is a color. Therefore, the cup is colored. The cup being colored is something that I arrive at through discourse. That is the third act of the intellect. So all the revealed data is given to us in the second act of the intellect. So certain judgments. So let's say, for example, the word became flesh. The word became flesh is a certain judgment that is the revealed data. Now, let's say that I look at that judgment, the word is flesh, and I specifically look at the notion of flesh. Okay, what is, what is flesh? And I analyze the notion and through an analysis of the notion of flesh, I do it by analogy with certain created things. So I look at, um, for example, what is what is flesh, uh, philosophically speaking, uh, and, and, I, and I consider it and consider it and consider it. And I go from a confused notion, that is the, the notion of flesh, uh, generally speaking, to a specific notion, that is flesh is human nature. So going from an unclear to a clear, that is uh, said to be the first degree of development. The first degree of development is merely the clarification of a notion 
in a revealed judgment. That is all it is. So uh, we can see this a lot, actually. And this is this is actually most of the work of the theologian. Uh, this is actually the most important work of the theologian, the most important work of the theologian. And, I, and I've been uh, reading a lot about uh, Introduction to Sacred Theology recently. Uh, so uh, theological method and stuff has been uh, on my mind. But the most important work of the theologian is to take the revealed data and to more uh, profoundly consider the notions which are presented to us. That is to contemplate the word of God in order to understand, that is penetrate the notions which are presented to us. Because in the weakness and frailty of human language, which expresses divine realities, inevitably, there's going to need to be some sort of appropriation of notions to our understanding. And therefore, uh, in, in for you reform that are about the anatomy or Protestants about the anatomy, it's kind of like the, the accommodation of idea of, of Calvin when he talks about God is babbling to us. Well, because um, generally the, the message of the apostles is given to everybody that everybody may be able to comprehend uh, what's going on there or to have some sort of understanding of what's going on there. It is the office of the wise man to contemplate those uh, the revealed data which is given to us by the apostles and to clarify them uh, into uh, in, in the office of theology into uh, what what is being spoken of in its most profound sense. So we're going from unclear to clear. That is first degree development. Uh, this is uh, everybody agrees that the uh, the terminus ad quorum, so the, the ending, or rather than the terminus ad quo, the beginning. So the ending of this process of the clarification of notions by way of analogy, that is something which is de fide. That is something which is a dogma. That is something which is of faith. This is the first way in which development can happen. Now, there's a second way, and the second way is actually where we begin uh, to actually, no, I, want, I wanted to give an example of the first way. So an example of the first way, uh, at least in Catholic dogma, I wanted to make sure you, you know uh, the Catholic examples of this. But an example of this is the, uh, is the dogma of transubstantiation. The dogma of transubstantiation is not a conclusion to, uh, to, dis to rational discourse. That is the, the third act of the intellect. Rather, it's merely the clarification of the notion of body as present in our Lord's uh, words in the institution narrative uh, that this is my body. Uh, body is, is that which is clarified by a certain analogy of, uh, of, of notions uh, with, with our created notions. Uh, and, and therefore that is the, the ending of this clarification process is the doctrine of transubstantiation. So yes, we think that the apostles actually believed in transubstantiation explicitly. Yes, that's what we believe. And we think that they revealed it in unclear notions. And unclear is not taken in a, uh, I guess, I guess unclear has a negative connotation to it. Um, more, more like uh, appropriated notions. The, the apostles revealed transubstantiation in appropriated notions. See, that, that, is, that is a much better word than unclear. Unclear is a negative connotation to it. Okay, so the, the second degree, the second uh, way is uh, remember we talked about the three acts of the intellect you have apprehension you have judgment and then you have discourse so uh when it comes to discourse we have a judgment 
and we smash it together with another judgment and we draw a conclusion. Just like in my example, the cup is white, white is a color, therefore the cup is color. So when it comes to this second way, we are not only clarifying the notion, but we are drawing forth another concept. Now there's obviously the uh, classical principle that the conclusion is virtually contained in the premises. So we're drawing something which is conceptually distinct from the original judgment, but it is objectively the same judgment. So uh, we may have, uh, for example, Christ is a man uh, that is revealed in, uh, actually, I'll, I'll take you through the whole process. This will be fun. You can, you can see how Catholic theology happens. So we have the revealed notion, the word uh, became flesh. We take a word, we consider that notion as the second person of the Trinity, okay? And then we have became flesh, okay, what is flesh? Okay, it's human nature. Okay, so the second person of the Trinity has a human nature. Now, uh, we can we can look uh, philosophically, okay, what does it mean to have a human nature? What are the various properties of human nature? Uh, what is, uh, how do we define human nature? Uh, what type of conclusions can we bring forth uh, to human nature? Okay, we see that a human nature has a vegetative soul. Okay, human nature has a vegetative soul. So, um, or, or actually better yet, uh, because this is uh, more clear because it's not a part, uh, but a property. Uh, Christ is risible. Uh, that, that, that human nature uh, includes as one of its properties the ability to laugh. So we take the revealed notion, uh, we take the revealed uh, datum, that is, uh, that the word became flesh. We clarify it into uh, Christ has a human nature. And then we add the naturally knowable premise. That is, that uh, risibility is a property of human nature. And then we draw forth another judgment by discourse. And this is that Christ had the ability to laugh. That is a conclusion that is objectively identical to the revealed data, but it includes different notions, different concepts. It's only virtually, not implicitly contained in the original judgment. So we have a true, uh, what's called theological conclusion. So the fact that Christ is risible has actually not been defined by the Catholic Church. So right now, uh, one does not need to hold that Christ is risible uh, in order uh, to be an Orthodox Catholic. Now, it's, uh, it's something... The risibility of Christ is certain in theology, and therefore uh, one would, would certainly uh, be condemned uh, for, for holding it. You can't hold that Christ is not risible. But as Domingo Banez uh, said, the, that if one holds that Christ is not risible, that does not make him a bad theologian. Uh, it does not make him a uh, heretic. It just makes him a bad philosopher. Because you're denying uh, something which is a naturally noble premise. But we can still know that it's a conclusion. Now, on the other hand, having said that, just uh, saying that uh, theological conclusions belong to the habit of theology, uh, not the habit of faith. The church, uh, after the work of theologians, 
can define theological conclusions. Now, this is debatable, and I'm going to be getting into the various sides when it comes to this in a minute. But the church could swoop in tomorrow, and Pope Francis, uh, from the chair, uh, with uh, invoking the wrath of Peter and Paul, could say that all uh, all men must hold the eye from the chair and, and teaching everybody uh, you will uh, burn an everlasting fire if you deny this. Pope Francis could say, I define and declare that Christ is risible. And upon saying that, that goes from being a theological conclusion to a dogma. Now, how does that work? Well, uh, a certain uh, habit is specified by its object. Now, as we've already said, the conclusion is virtually contained in the premises and that they are merely concepts of the same object. They are objectively identical. So when it comes to the conclusion that Christ is risible, that is objectively identical to the word became flesh, although it's conceptually distinct and therefore it's a, it's a theological conclusion. But since it is objectively identical, the church can step in and define that it is of faith. So that is the second degree of, uh, of, the, of, uh, of the evolution of doctrine. And I need to uh, grab water real quick, so I'm going to take a minute. But uh, y'all talk about something in the, uh, in the live chat again. Okay, I'm back. And fantastic news. I realized that it is almost five o'clock and that I had a Guinness in the fridge. So I didn't grab a, a water. I grabbed a Guinness. So this should make my theological expressions to be even better. So um, when it comes to the various views on uh, the evolution of dogma, uh, once I get through that, I will answer some of y'all's questions in the chat and then i'll get on to liturgical law and all that fun stuff 
Okay. So there we go. So there's uh, historically uh, before Newman, this is dating back to the second scholastic period. So uh, Domingo Banez, uh, Soto, uh, let me think, uh, Molina, Suarez, Jonathan Thomas, all the all those fun guys. Think think of the the school of Salamanca and all of the greats of Salamanca. Uh, basically, dating all the way back to those guys. And actually, the first two schools date even further back to the golden period. So that's 13th century. So that's Bonaventure, um, St. Thomas, a little bit after is uh, Scotus and Occam. So, so these are pretty ancient uh, schools when it comes to the idea of doctrinal development. Uh, this is certainly far beyond uh, Newman. Uh, this is far, far uh, before, before him. So uh, when it comes to the first two schools, so first, there was a dispute between, on the one hand, you had the Scotists and Nominalists, and on the other hand, you had the Thomists. And uh, actually, I'm convinced that a lot of Franciscans were on the side of the Thomists. Uh, Bonaventure seems to, and actually Scotists seems to, uh, but that's disputed. So everybody back then agreed that uh, you could have the first degree of development and that you could have the second degree of development. Everybody agreed on that. Uh, this wasn't a disputed point at all. Uh, this this wasn't controversial uh, within the schools. Trust me, if it was controversial in the schools, uh, you would have heard about it. Because they like to argue about everything. So everybody agreed on the first two degrees. But there was a disagreement. And the disagreement between Scotus and Nominalists and the Thomas and some of the Franciscans was... What habit did theological conclusions specify? That seems to be very obscure. But on the one hand, the Scotus and the Nominalist said, well, when we draw forth these theological conclusions, since they are objectively identical to the revealed data, since they are uh, objectively identical to the dogmas from which they come, even though they are virtually distinct, it is of the habit of faith for the one who is able to understand. So when it comes to all the smart people who are able to see that uh, risibility is a certain property of human nature, for those to deny that Christ is risible, they would be going against the faith and they would be heretics. So that, that's, what, that's what they had. Now, on the other hand, you have the, the sort of Bagnesian uh, attitude that I already mentioned, that if you deny that Christ is risible, it doesn't make you a heretic, it just makes you a bad philosopher. So what they said is, okay, when you, uh, and this actually gets into uh, St. Thomas's uh, De Doctrina, where he discusses whether it's lawful to have different opinions when it comes to the notions. Uh, this was actually a question which was, which was discussed in all of the sentences, commentaries, and you can actually find everybody's opinion on this question there. So this is kind of annoying. Everybody says Newman made up development of doctrine when they actually talk about it in there uh, explicitly, but uh, I digress. So on the other hand, the Thomists are going to say, well, the church could define uh, theological inclusions and it does define theological conclusions, but before there is the promulgation of the church of a theological conclusion, then that theological conclusion is not of faith yet. Because 
uh, and they and they pointed this out quite well. Actually, the habit of faith is specified not merely by the material object, but by the formal object. So the object considered under a certain formal as uh, formal aspect. So while the object is revealed and therefore is definable, the aspect is different and therefore does not elicit the act of faith. So in itself, it is of faith, but it is not uh, of faith quad notes. So according to us. So the, the nominalists slash Scotus and some of the Franciscans slash Thomas and uh, you had Augustinians, I think, were on the uh, Thomas side too. They fought and they beat each other up for a few centuries. You know how it was. Until the late 16th, early 17th century. Then you get our good friend, Suarez. Now Suarez, he's not like other, he, he's, he's not like other scholastics. Uh, he's, he's, he's one of those unique eclectics, which actually most scholastics were eclectics, but uh, that's a discussion for a different day, which I think actually was a bad thing. Um, but you had Suarez, he was an eclectic. He kind of wanted to do things new, uh, find some innovative uh, solutions to old problems. And some of the stuff he did was actually pretty interesting, uh, where he stayed within the, the realm of scholastic orthodoxy. He does really interesting stuff. Um, but when it comes to this issue, Suarez kind of messed up when it comes to virtuality. So how conclusions are contained in premises. So he just couldn't figure out how the church could define uh, as of faith a theological conclusion when it was something which was formally distinct from uh, the formality of the revealed data. He just couldn't, he just couldn't get it. So what Suarez did is Suarez said, well, okay, guys, so I think there's something called continuing revelation to where you have this process where on the one hand, you have the subjective word of God, which is the word of God as received um, from the apostles. On the other hand, you have the objective word of God, which is the, the uh, principally of uh, the word existing in the mind of God, also in the mind of the apostles, and then in the, uh, in the words in which they express. So I think that the subjective word of God, by the working of the spirit, can move into the realm of the objective word of God. So there's this quasi-continuing revelation uh, that goes on. And all of the rest of the, uh, all the rest of the scholastics, and it's like uh, Baroque music stops, and they're like, what, what in the world are you talking about, Suarez? We can't have continuing revelation. This is like one of the big points of Catholicism of really the, the Christian faith in general. We do not let continuing revelation happen. At least continuing public revelation, or private revelation is another, uh, another deal, but it's not a, it's not a, a proper theological loci, so really that's a completely different discussion. But we do not have continuing public revelation. What was said by the apostles and what was written by the apostles, that was definitive. Haven't you read Hebrew, uh, Hebrews 1, Suarez? So they all flipped out, and some of them pointed to the traditional view of the virtuality of con uh, premise, uh, prem uh, conclusions in their premises. That's what some of them did. 
So they held the traditional Scotistic or Thomistic, and I'm tired of naming all the schools, so I'm just going to name them Scotistic and Thomistic. So the Scotistic or the Thomistic view. Others, headed by none other than Molina, you know, the, the guy with the middle knowledge stuff, the guy with all of the weird gray stuff. Molina said, actually, I have a better solution, guys. So, you know how we have all universally agreed up until now that the church could define theological inclusions? Well, I think Suarez is actually right when it comes to his views of uh, the the virtuality of conclusions, their premises. I think he's absolutely right. I don't think you can uh, you can uh, define a faith theological conclusion. Therefore, all of those times that the church has defined theological inclusions, they actually weren't defining theological conclusions the whole time. They were actually just doing the first degree. Now, the church can define, uh, can uh, infallibly teach a certain doctrine, uh, but it's not uh, specified by the habit of faith, it's just specified by the habit of theology, and it's just uh, due to uh, de fide tenenda, not de fide credenda, uh, credenda, therefore it's all good. So actually, you know, Molina said, it, their theological inclusions were never defined, don't worry about all those theological inclusions that were defined. Uh, those, those actually didn't happen. So you see, uh, there was some weird stuff going on in Salamanca. Uh, things were not, uh, things were not aright. So, Somehow, 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 uh, who knows how it happened, but a lot of Thomas uh, is actually through John of St. Thomas. Uh, as much as I love John of St. Thomas, I'm sorry to say this about John of St. Thomas, he kind of messed up here. Uh, as, as much as I love John of St. Thomas, I have to say it, uh, through John of St. Thomas, a lot of Thomas, uh, including eventually uh, Gary Gou Lagrange and Schultz, held to this position that theological inclusions could not be defined. And on the other hand, of uh, Father Sola, after a very long period of a lot of people just kind of saying the uh, Suarezian view if they were Jesuits, on the other hand, you had the um, uh, Molinist, <laughs> I call it Molinist, kind of funny, the Molinist view uh, on, the, on the other side. Uh, Marine Sola's like, okay, guys, we, we need to chill. Look at the traditional Thomistic view. This is honest. It honestly makes the most sense. And I, and I hope all of you uh, from from thinking about the views can see, okay, yeah, the Thomistic view kind of makes the most sense. I could see, uh, for me, the runner-up is definitely uh, the, the Scotistic nominalist view. Third place is uh, the Molinist view. Last place is Suarez. Suarez, what were you what were you thinking? And you know what the funny part is? Because this is this is about where uh, this is where I'm going to drop the bomb. Because up until now, I've not mentioned Newman. But guess who Newman was following? I'm going to take a drink of my beer. If you read the papers that Newman sent to Perone, the Perone Newman papers, which became known as well, the evolution of Catholic dogma, the man that he quotes the most. Actually, I think it's the only scholastic he quotes outside of a of a few 19th century ones. I think Perone was the only one the 19th century quoted. The only one from the period. Who was it? Drumroll. Suarez. Newman was a Suarez. Crazy, right? So Newman takes this view from Suarez uh, when it comes to the evolution of dogma. 
So Newman really kind of has a really wacky view uh, when it comes to historically speaking uh, with the evolution of dogma. And on this, and on the other hand, uh, second, uh, and there's going to be a third too. On the other hand, most don't consider this, uh, and it's just nuts that people don't consider this. When uh, look up the date that Newman wrote his essay on the development of Christian Christian doctrine. And then look up the date of his conversion. Newman finished the essay on the development of Christian doctrine two years before he converted to the Catholic faith. What does that mean? All of the research he was doing up, up until that point, he, he wasn't doing it as a Catholic. And I mean, yeah, he can still be right when it comes to a lot of things. But uh, there, there has been this conversation within the schools for centuries that Newman had not been conversing with. And the only conversation partner he eventually has is Suarez, which as we see, uh, Suarez is bad juju. So Newman, uh, that, that's kind of his, his second. And then on the third hand, uh, Newman was English. <laughs> no offense to English people, but Newman was English. And uh, that means uh, Newman kind of gets into his feels a little bit. And Newman, uh, and this is universally recognized, even by Newman himself, if you read some of his uh, later uh, work, some of his letters, and then also his uh, university lectures, you, you see that Newman uh, recognized that he inordinately focused on the sort of sensual, uh, not sensual in the sense of like sinful sensuality, but sort of feeling aspect of the development of doctrine, something that comes through the, the, the sense of the people rather than something which comes uh, through the theological schools and their elation, which is the, uh, the elation that is reasoning, uh, which is the, the traditional view of the development of doctrine. It principally comes through uh, the, the reasoning of the schoolmen and not uh, necessarily something which is feelings uh, based. So that is, that is the entire uh, sort of scope uh, right there. I'm going to be looking through some of the uh, some of the comments and then we're going to be getting into some stuff about liturgical law. Actually, um, I might have but if why yeah you know I kind of do need to go see. So I might just do liturgical law as part two uh, for tomorrow uh, and then just do this as part one where I just cover how trying to and I'll answer some questions. Uh, so the, the Catholic brother said all the aniconism is due to Platonic Gnostic tendencies of the early church fathers. This is just problematic. Uh, that is really uh, weird. Yeah, I, I didn't watch uh, that. I'll have to. So punctuated evolution is rapid shifts. The uh, opposite is gradualism. The evolution itself is not necessarily the problem, but the speed at which it occurs seems to be. Um, yeah, I don't really, uh, know when it comes to, uh, this, I didn't even know, I've never read about this dispute, uh, over timing. I know, uh, Newman discusses it a bit in, uh, when he's writing the Cardinal Perone. Uh, Newman seems to think that it's actually, uh, rap, uh, something which is rapid, uh, something which is sort of unexpectedly, uh, arises, uh, to the con consciousness of the church after it has a sort of um, movement of the illative sense within the church. I guess it's the best way of describing it. Where they're talking about it without even realizing that they're talking about it. And then the heretic comes up and they're like, okay, wow, actually we were uh, thinking about this the whole time. 
you just told us about this. So, yeah, never heard about that dispute. Uh, evolution of dogma could be like an explosion. I, I don't, I, I think e either way, um, time is going to be something which is accidental uh, to the evolution. People can reason and come to uh, consensus quickly on certain things, which it seems like uh, that's what was happening in the debates that were happening in the early church. Uh, you see this for sure uh, when it comes to uh, um, the debates around uh, Calcinon. And on the other hand, you can have stuff that is just very slow and gradual, uh, something like the Marian dogmas. Uh, the Marian dogmas for sure, I mean, those were discussed uh, within Catholic schools explicitly for like over a thousand years uh, at that point. Uh, and, and by the time that they defined it, it was like 99.8% or something wanted them to define it as a dogma. So it's like at that point, oh, why are you defining it as a dogma? Um, but uh, e either way, yeah, it, it, it really just depends on which is which. Uh, with your discussion on the human nature of Christ, do you think it was possible for him to sin? Passive potentiality uh, for sin. So, yeah, this is where we uh, distinguish between uh, what's called a necessity of the antecedent and necessity of the consequent. Let me see. I actually, St. Thomas discusses this in his sentences commentary, a distinction 12, question 2, article 1. So he says, okay, yeah, he says, uh, those words, so the quote in objection five, uh, Christ says, if I said, I do not know him, I should be a liar like you, but he was able to say those words without the addition just as he said them with the addition, therefore he was able to lie and therefore also able to sin. And then he responds, those words mean that Christ would have been able to do so if he had willed, but he was not able to will it. So he has the, he has the proper faculties uh, that could, um, if those faculties are directed uh, in that way, antecedent to the consideration of any of the, the graces given to his humanity that could in, in that way uh, sin. But consequently, that is uh, in, in consideration uh, of the graces given to him and in consideration with the uh, hypostatic union, uh, the, the, the hypostasis of the humanity, then no, uh, he, he couldn't. Uh, so that's uh, the, the sort of tough question around impeccability, which is a fun, fun topic. I like impeccability. So, other questions. If a conclusion is certain, then what's the point of the Pope making a dogma? And how would his decision be invoking any sort of real infallibility if it's just stating the obvious? This is a really good question. I think this illustrates uh, a common misunderstanding amongst Protestants and a, and a very sharp difference amongst the way in which Protestants view dogma, the way in which Catholics view dogma. Catholics have a much higher view of what dogma is because dogma for catholics specifies the habit of faith so the uh, the fact that it that something has been revealed by god on the sole basis that god has revealed it 
that's what that that is what the the motive of the ascent of faith is. That's what specifies. It. On the other hand, uh, you can have what is merely doctrinal. Now, what is merely doctrinal? What is the motive for the ascent? The motive the, of, for the ascent is the better or worse reasoning process of the certain theologian. So St. Thomas, uh, when discussing this or that, uh, why do I assent to what St. Thomas says? Well, I think it is something which follows uh, upon analysis from a revealed judgment. And therefore it specifies what's called the habit of theology which is not uh, said to be entitatively supernatural. So it's not supernatural in accordance with its being. It's said to be radically supernatural. So it's supernatural in accordance with its root. So uh, everybody, every single, I, I think every single theologian in the Catholic Church agrees that Christ is risible. Not a single person in the Catholic Church assents with the assent of faith that Christ is risible. Huge distinction. Huge distinction. It's the difference between trusting upon human trust and trusting on the very basis that God has revealed something. Completely different motives. Very important. Okay, so what are the benefits of ex cathedra? What do you, what do you mean? Uh, I, I think I think I basically explained it uh, when it comes to the differences between assenting to something with theological assent. And assenting to something with a ascent of faith. Uh, do you think that the other Paul gets too close to rationalism in his defense of Sola Scriptura? Obviously, he would say that we get too close to fideism. Uh, I don't know in uh, what aspect you're talking about. Uh, I guess I'll I guess I'll give you guys a minute to see if you have any other questions. If not, I'm gonna go. Dang, uh, only an hour. I thought this was going to be like a 30 minute stream and you know, I barely got through half of it in an hour. You know, that's just how things go though. Just gotta roll with it. Okay, I don't see any other questions. So thank you guys. And God bless.